Hello and welcome to Ballot to Talk About. It's Saturday the 8th of January 2022. Joining me as always from the other side of the globe is my co-host Churn. How are you doing Churn? Not too bad thanks. It's the first full working week here so getting back into the groove. Um, here in Singapore it's also the first week in which we're all allowed back into the office so appreciated the change of scenery from the location uh, they can't really talk every week. But Sam, there is a lot to look forward to this this year, upcoming this upcoming year, isn't there? Yeah, and that is going to be what this week's podcast is all about. Because this week we'll be looking ahead to what to expect in the upcoming 2022 political year, so that anybody who listens to us can get some dates in their diaries and and know what to expect. But Chen, before we do that, there's finally after all this time, a new government in the Netherlands, isn't there? Indeed, and the word finally is a very apt description because this is the longest government formation ever in the Netherlands. Nine months after the Dutch went to the polls in March, they finally have a new government, which is set to be sworn in um, at time of recording on Monday, in fact. Prime Minister Mark Rutte's Conservative Liberal VVD party will return with the D66, the Christian Democrat Appeal and the Small Christian Union Party, a four-party coalition which together will have a majority in the House of Representatives, a bare one, 77 out of 150 seats, but will be a minority in the Senate with holding only 32 out of 75 seats. So you need six seats. This coalition will need six seats to get a majority through the Senate. Um, the cabinet that's been unveiled has created some history. Uh, Sigurd Karg, if you recall, was the prime ministerial candidate of D66, will become Dutch, the Netherlands' first ever female finance minister, which the portfolio of finance has traditionally gone to the head of the second largest party. And the leader of the Christian Democrats, Wolpe Holstra, who was a former finance minister, will move over to foreign affairs. And the fact that there are also two, a couple of notable firsts. Half the cabinet are women, and there are four LGBT cabinet ministers itself, including Rob Jetton, who is the parliamentary leader of the D66, and will be the minister of climate change at a young tender age of 34 years of age. So Sam, once again, you know, people of our generation are starting to take big posts in government. But more widely, Sam, for listeners who are aware of Dutch politics and followed us after the aftermath of the Dutch election, this coalition composition sounds very familiar, isn't it? Because it is the same composition of parties of the third Rutte government, the government that preceded the election. So I suppose the question naturally is, how come did it take nine months to get the exact same outcome? Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating that we've taken that the longest government formation in Dutch history has taken place to form the same government that preceded the election. For me, I think there's a couple of reasons why this is the case, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts as well, Chern. Firstly, I think one of the reasons is that prior to the election, there were numerous scandals affecting the government, most notably the fact that the cabinet en masse had to resign over the child benefit scandal just before the election. And I think that those kind of scandals usually lead to a, a big shake-up in politics and in who wants to negotiate with who, who is prepared to go into government with who. But what you then had in the election is very little change in terms of the composition of parties. So really, there were very few options left on the table. So I described it as like numerous, numerous scandals, but with very little consequence. And that kind of leaves a, a bizarre situation for parties to negotiate in. And then you also had the fact that when these coalition negotiations began, D66 and Mark Rutter's VVD wanted very different things. So Mark Rutter was wanting to lead a more centre-right, right-wing government, which included parties like JA21. But D66 wanted a more progressive option, and they wanted to, um, they wanted to negotiate with more centrist parties. And the problem here is that the reality of the situation was that both D66 and VVD were going to have to be in the eventual government because the numbers weren't there for anything else. So it took a long time for them to actually get to the same position. And in that period, you had the Christian Union rule, ruling out joining a government that Mark Rutter led. And I think there was a lot of jockeying for position underneath the VVD for, well, this is probably going to be Mark Rutter's last term in office. So we want to negotiate with the government of the future. And Mark Rutter, to them, seemed like a government of the past. 
So I think it took a long time to get to a position where all the parties were on the same page about what this government was going to look like. But I think at the heart of it all was a conflict between what the VVD wanted and what D66 wanted out of a government. And I think that's why it took so long. I don't know about you, Chen. I think two points I would add to that. I think it was a little bit more complex than that because even if, let's say, the D66 were to bring on one of the Labour Party, for example, because if it were to bring on the Labour Party, it would get over the majority threshold as well. You then had a situation where uh, the Labour Party themselves did not want to be in a coalition without the Greens or the Socialists. And if you include the Greens, which is probably the more feasible option compared to the Socialists, that will be rejected by both the Christian Democrats and the VVD. So that's also the combinations on the left were also not feasible. And it meant that D66, after a couple of months, had to go back to the table and negotiate with the VVD. And I think as well is that they were acknowledging potentially the long-term threats you have from the D66 perspective, several parties on the left that will be in opposition. You know, the Labour Party, the Socialists, the Greens that are well-placed potentially in the next election to pounce on any rightward shift in this government um, and argue that the D66 voters should move over to left progressive voters should move over to them. So I think in the long term, they potentially sense that there was leakage on their same level of voters to the centre-left parties, and therefore they had to bring another centre-left party to sort of compensate. But unfortunately, the Labour Party's position, I think, really prevented that option from happening. No, I think that's absolutely right. And D66 may well have agreed to go into this government, but whether it's future as an increasingly strong political force in the Netherlands is jeopardised by the fact that this government is much more centre-right than they anticipated. And not only that, you're really beginning to see that in the opinion polls, because the opinion polls, if you recall, Sam, the D66 did very well, actually, in the 2021 elections. In fact, they came second. But actually, they've lost five percentage points since then, actually. And Mark Rutte's party has remained roughly stable. So it appears as if that some of the D66 voters have really moved away. And in fact, the PVV, which is led by the far-right Gerd Wilders, has really moved into second place. So it clearly is, along centre-left, in this short period, already some movement away. And I think the D66 themselves realised they had to be the responsible party here because Netherlands is, like the rest of Europe, suffering from a big Omicron wave as well. And so a, a permanent government had to be formed. So they were really forced back to the negotiation table out of their will. Don't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one big question I have, Chen, just to, just to wrap up our chat on the, on the Netherlands, is what, do, what will this government look like? Because obviously there was a pressure from the D66 to move more towards the centre, but Mark Rutte was adamant that he wanted to form a centre-right government. So what kind of new legislation could we expect from this government? That's a very good question because the coalition agreement is actually quite bold if you look at it. It proposes a 7.5% increase in the minimum wage, building over 100,000 homes, road pricing, reforming student finance, ending natural gas extraction in Valden, sharply increasing infrastructure investment and climate transition, more generous subsidies for childcare, more foreign aid. So it's quite an ambitious program, particularly on the spending side, which if you know the position of the Netherlands in, EU, in the European Union, that could signal something very significant as well. And the fact that the finance ministry has moved to the D66 rather than the centre-right Christian Democrats, it could suggest that the Dutch status, it could, because we, this government has yet to be sworn in, that its status as a frugal EU country could be changing. And that could be very interesting dynamics for the rest of Europe. And so I think that's something very much to look forward to as a potential shift, really. But the question is, Sam, without a majority in the Senate, what is this government going to do? Because even though the Senate, according to the, its constitution, cannot amend or initiate legislation, it still has the right to accept or reject legislative proposals. So what do you think this government is going to do to get its legislation over the line in a Senate where it doesn't have a majority? Yeah, well, I wondered if that's the reason why this coalition agreement is so ambitious, because there are quite a few features of this that I think centre-left parties could get on board with. I mean, we spent last week's podcast, half of last week's podcast, talking about climate change. Well, in this coalition agreement, there's a 35 billion euro climate spending package. And that's just one example that I think is something that centre-left parties could definitely get on board with. I think extending free childcare, 
I think some of the policies on the minimum wage are things that centre-left parties could get on board with. I mean, it's important to remember that the Netherlands is a coalition-building, alliance-building democracy because of the fact that it has one of the most proportional, well, probably the most proportional electoral system in the world. So it's not unusual for parties all over the spectrum to have to support legislation on a case-by-case basis. But I think one of the benefits of this ambitious coalition agreement is that you're much more likely to get those centre-left parties on board. I agree. I think it's going to be a case-by-case basis as well. And by not bringing one of them in, it also gives Mark Rutte an option to turn to GA21, which a lot of its base potentially would want to talk to. And there is similar policy uh, with the JA21 that many of the VVD would like. For example, they are, uh, they are very relatively, they uh, favour less regulatory burden, less tax relief, and more support for entrepreneurs. So there is some, and they have a populist conservative element in this, which many of the VVD wants. And I think it therefore gives it this both sides feel that potentially as the final coalition party get over the line, it could turn to Labour or the Greens on the left, thanks to its climate policy, or VVD, if you're feeling a bit nervous, can look to its right and bring in JA21 as well. Nonetheless, I think that Mark Rutte has made challenges ahead. He's facing not one, not two, but three parliamentary inquiries. The child benefit scandal, which toppled his previous government, another one on the government's handling of the coronavirus pandemic, and one on the extraction and compensation around the Grogan gas views. Should he remain in office until October this year, which he will become, he will enter the history books as the Netherlands' longest ever serving prime minister. Quite an achievement in store for him if he can hang on. And I think this coalition negotiations that he's negotiated shows that he wants to become not a managerial prime minister, but potentially wants to be a transformative prime minister. So, welcome back to Ballot to Talk About and our main section of this week's episode, which is going to be taking a look at the year 2022 and the elections we have in store and the elections we'll be bringing you throughout the year as big features on Ballot to Talk About. So, as 2021 goes into the rearview mirror, 2022 is poised to offer many exciting political talking points and we'll be going through region by region talking about some of the elections to look forward to, the themes that we might be talking about, and why these races are important for any political observer to keep an eye on, not just when the election takes place, but throughout the year as we build up to them as well. So Chern, I thought we should begin with the Americas, the North and South Americas, because there's quite a number of significant elections taking place in that that region this year, not least in November, the US midterms, which are always a staple of the political calendar because the United States seem to always be in election mode. Um, But there's a few other interesting ones, isn't there? I don't know if you want to talk about the US first, given that it's a big one we're looking forward to later in the year. I, I don't think you can really not look at the United States. And given the Democrats barely control the House and the Senate, this is potentially looking at a potentially transformative moment in Joe Biden's presidency. Because if he loses even one chamber, which is a very high possibility, though you could argue, Sam, his legislative agenda for the next two years is severely limited. So whatever he does in the lead up to now and potentially after November will be very much dictated by how the Democrats view its options in those midterms. And that has a big effect, not only in the world politics, geopolitics, but also in the world economy as well, with the United States being the largest economy. So I don't think you can really move much from there. But nonetheless, Sam, I would like to bring up Brazil as another country to potentially look out for, because it is the largest economy in South America. It is also one in which the far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, is facing what looks like to be a very potentially difficult re-election campaign against former president Luis Inciano Lula da Silva, who was who left office in 2010 as Brazil's one of Brazil's most popular presidents. And I suspect the far-right Bolsonaro has a fundamental, for want of a better word, hatred of the Workers' Party and Lula da Silva. So we'll try and do everything in his power. And you know, the chances of another Donald Trump style refusal to concede is very high there. So I think it is also another country to watch potentially as another country that has a lot at stake in 2022. 
Yeah, I mean, I think Brazil is an excellent one to look out for because there is so much um, going on in there in terms of the opinion polls because on the, on the surface, it's looking like um, Lula da Silva is the absolute front runner to defeat Herr Bolsonaro. But I think we forget that in 2018, when Bolsonaro was first elected, it was a late surge in the last few weeks of the campaign that propelled him to the lead. So I really don't think we can write off Bolsonaro just yet. And that that election's not taking place till October. So there is a very long race to run here. Just going back to the US midterms, I think it's fascinating this time because we have interesting stories on both the House and Senate side this time. Because it's it's incredibly likely, if not all but certain, that this is Nancy Pelosi's final year as leader of as Speaker of the House of Representatives, whether it's through the Republicans taking control of the House or Nancy Pelosi stepping down, it's likely to be her last time. But then on the Senate side, I think it's difficult for the Democrats because on the surface, this is a really favorable map. This class of Senate seats is a good map for the Democrats because they are looking to advance in places like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, potentially even um, North Carolina as well. But with it being an incumbent Democratic president holding a trifecta, this map is likely to not be as favorable as they were expecting because they're defending seats in Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, New Hampshire, just to name a few all of which are looking increasingly vulnerable. So, I mean, President Trump lost the House in 2018, but I think it's likely that Joe Biden might be looking, staring down the barrel of losing both chambers of Congress. Do you not agree, Chern? Of the two, which do you think he has a better chance of losing the House or the Senate? I think he's most likely to lose the Senate, personally. I agree with you, actually. I think there's much more problems that could face the Democrats, particularly in the Senate, because it is 50-50. So you need one seat to change and, you know, control of the Senate is lost. And that is actually more dangerous, actually, because one of the ticking time bombs is that Stephen Breyer is an 80-year-old liberal justice. And we know the playbook Mitch McConnell, if he were to become majority leader again, if the Republicans take back the Senate, how he would view any upcoming Supreme Court appointments and given the fact that in the last time he did, he basically had a block on Merrick Garland heading to the Supreme Court. So the stakes for the Democrats, particularly the, as the Senate is seen as more vulnerable, is really existential to the, how the makeup of the United States could be for not only the next two years, but the next 30 to 40 years, thanks to the Senate's ability to confirm or you know deny or give withdraw confirmation from judicial nominees. So potentially this is a very important election on the Senate side. And I think as well, you list out potential battlegrounds there. I have to admit that because it's a Democrat incumbent, uh, Joe Biden is a Democrat incumbent president, I think Florida is largely off the map now. Marco Rubio is the senator up for re-election. You know, he one of the, where Republicans did very well in 2020 was among Hispanics in Miami as well. And Marco Rubio, I suspect, will perform very well there. So I think the, the, on the Senate side, that is gone. I, the, the Democrats have come close, but no cigar in so many races over the years in North Carolina. You know, so we're really looking at Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. And, you know, with, with so many more vulnerabilities, you know, they might have gotten a reprieve given that the popular New Hampshire Republican governor, Chris Sinonio, is not running against Maggie Hassan, who was seen as quite a weak incumbent. They nonetheless have a lot of weaknesses on that side. And I just think, like you, that the Senate is potentially much more vulnerable. Mm. There's some very high-profile governor, governor races coming up as well in, 28, in, in 2022, isn't there? Exactly. And one of the things, as we don't you agree, Sam, that we saw from the pandemic is the importance of governors, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And I think it's interesting because the 2018 midterms were dominated by some names who will be reappearing in the 2022 midterms. Isn't that right? Exactly. And I just wonder for how Laura Kelly is feeling because she was elected governor, if you recall, over uh, in Sam, that's Sam Brownback state and over quite a controversial Chris Colbert as well in a narrowly, but, you know, ruby red Republican state. So I wonder what her chances of re-election will be as well moving forward. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer could potentially be very interesting in Michigan because Michigan's governorship tends to go to the opposite party of whichever party's in the White House. 
So that could be potentially something very dangerous or to watch as well. Uh, so I and Wisconsin as well. Tony Evers barely squeaked out the re-election in 2018. So it would be very interesting to watch what happens there as well. So Sam, would you not agree? You know, in Brazil and the US, the picture in the America seems to be incumbents potentially facing some problems. Yeah, and I think the final America's election that I wanted to bring up also um, contributes to that narrative because in Canada, we have two quite significant um, state elections taking place this year. We have Ontario in June and Quebec in October. Incumbents probably aren't facing a problem in Quebec because at the moment, the Coalition Avenir Quebec is looking like it's going to romp back to a majority in Quebec. But Ontario is looking like a fascinating potential three-way race, isn't it? Yes, and I think that's really interesting because this Doug Ford is um, the uh, Ontario Premier. He's going to be fighting for his second term. Ontario, just a bit of history, is a bit like um, Michigan in the sense that it tends to send to Queen's Park, the opposite party to whoever governs in Ottawa. So that is advantage Doug Ford. But we're looking at, Sam, if you not agree, a three-party scenario where you know, it could be for the first time since the late 70s where all three parties have a realistic chance of getting over 25% of the vote. And in the first party system, that's really a dog's breakfast in terms of what forms a majority government, if possible, really. Would you know, how do you see that race playing out? Yeah, I, I'm really not sure because the opinion polls are reminding me a lot of the 2015 election um, in Canada, where you had a really close fought three-way race between all the parties. And, um, and it wasn't until basically the very end of it, that it became clear that Justin Trudeau's Liberal Party was going to take the state. So I really can't call it churn, but I think it's going to be a fascinating campaign. Just one caveat. I think something too important to note is that the Ontario Liberals, I wonder if their poll ratings potentially are not reflective of potentially the real move, because we saw what happened when Justin Trudeau immediately called the election in 2000 last year. You know, we saw the Conservatives soar back up to a relatively much more, uh, a couple of percentage point the moment the election dropped. I wonder if the Ontario Liberals, a lot of it is a lot of the brand from the federal election still carrying on to this provincial brand because the provincial state of the Liberals is in a dire state, to be frank. You know, they, hold, they don't even hold major party status within the legislature itself. The uh, don't know ratings of Stephen Del Duca, who will be, the nominee for uh, liberal nominee for premier is extremely high. So I wonder whether a lot of their voters is basically brand recognition from the federal election coming through because they share the same name. And when the race properly turns to the provincial election over the next couple of months, I wonder if that vote will continue to fall away. And that could benefit uh, Andrea Holworth, the new Democrats, or you know the votes could switch around there. Do you think that's a plausible theory at this stage? No, absolutely. I think there's many things that could happen in the build-up to the June elections in Ontario, but I think it's definitely a fascinating highlight of the Americas in 2022. Um, Chern, interestingly, we talk about incumbents facing problems potentially in um, the North and South Americas. Well, incumbents are almost fighting for survival as well in Asia-Pacific, aren't they? Well... Some of it's enforced. South Korea's president is term limited after only one term, so there will be a new president. The question is, though, Sam, and South Korean elections are always very interesting because there's always the foreign policy angle, isn't it, of how to deal with relations with North Korea. And, you know, the, it's going to be two lawyers fighting against each other, so that could be very interesting. I suspect by your statement that you were particularly looking to Scott Morrison in Australia, but he's fighting a fourth term. And it does look potentially like his, um, his, his star is potentially on its way out. But we've been here before for Australia in the 2019 election. So I think those are definitely two countries in which that will be very interesting as well. And in particular as well, a state election in India, which is Uttar Pradesh. It is the largest state in India. It sends the most MPs to New Delhi. And it is the state in which Narendra Modi is absolutely focused, laser focused on keeping the chief ministership, because if his party performs well there, it could be a good sign that in the middle of his term that his party is well placed to return for a third term in 2024. So 
I think all eyes in India will look to Uttar Pradesh in the next couple of months to see how they perform. Isn't that good? Is what do you else? Anything else that caught your eye, Sam? Yeah, well, those are all the three I was thinking of. And in fact, when I was talking about incumbency, it was India that first came to mind because a lot of observers are saying that the Uttar Pradesh state election, which should be held between in February, across February and March, so we should have the results by early to mid-spring, is going to be a complete bellwether of the support of the BJP, not just going into the 2024 general election, but also the state of the inter-party politics of the BJP, because I think we're going to learn a lot in Uttar Pradesh about what the future of the BJP is beyond Narendra Modi. Because, as you said, the chief minister there, Yogi Adityanath, is seen as one of the frontrunners to be the successor to Modi. However, he has a massive opportunity next year, this year, sorry, in a couple of months' time, to prove his electability to the wider party and to the party infrastructure of the BJP. And if, as some opinion polls are projecting, the NDA support is falling, that is not good news for Yogi, because if he's not seen as someone who can run an election campaign in his own state, in a BJP heartland, then it's not going to bode well for the Lok Shabra elections nationally. And we could be seeing our eyes turn to other states in terms of where the successor to Modi is going to come from. So I think Uttar Pradesh is fascinating in terms of its local dynamics and the dynamics for the, for the party looking ahead to 2024. But I think it's even more interesting in terms of the future of the BJP beyond Narendra Modi. I think I would disagree with your characterization of the BJP's as a natural governing force because apart to Yogi's ascension to the chief ministership, the last time in which they held the office was in 2002, actually. So it's been 16 years. But nonetheless, you know, if you think about nationally India, is that the BJP has not really been in government for most of India's history. But nonetheless, this way in which it got into government was through Uttar Pradesh. So this is really the voters who trusted Modi and not necessarily the rest of the BJP who gave the BJP confidence in 2014 and 2019. These are these new Modi voters that will be heading to the polls. That, that's what makes Uttar Pradesh particularly fascinating. At this stage, the main competition for Yogi comes from the former chief minister, Yakushiv Yadis and his party, which... Um, and I think as well that that and the poll suggests that the BJP is 50-50 at this stage of losing its majority, which considering the fact that it's gone up to landslide last time, is going to be quite a remarkable result. Sam, I think another interesting facet of this election is who the Indian Congress Party, you know, the, the traditional natural governing party in India, who they are nominating as a chief minister candidate. It is Priyanka Gandhi, the sister of Rahul Gandhi the national, and the daughter of Sonia Gandhi, granddaughter of Indira Gandhi. So this is pure Gandhi royalty. She's often been seen as the Congress's more preferred answer because she's much more charismatic than her brother. This will be a key test of what the viability of the Gandhi name is. And this will be very interesting to watch to see how they do because if she does well and the Congress party is, has only seven seats right now in the 403 legislature, it could suggest to me that if she does well, that New Delhi could be once again in, within the sights of the Congress party. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And we'll also later in the year in December have a state election in India in Gujarat, which is not as significant in terms of the BJP's national fortunes, but is a very close, in 2017 was a very close run election between the Congress and the BJP. And if the BJP are falling in the opinion polls, as expected, we might be expecting a change of hands over there as well. And not only forget, where's, which state is Nendra Modi from? He was a former chief minister of Gujarat. What kind of egg on his face would be if he were to lose his home state? I just don't think that is almost a no-go, really. So, so those are some of the um, elections to take place in the Asia-Pacific. Do you think there are any themes that could potentially tie everything together besides incumbents, potentially, the role of the trouble of incumbents facing Americas. Yeah, I don't think this I don't think the theme is necessarily as strong, but we might at the end of the year be able to 
draw out some different conclusions. One thing I will say, because you mentioned South Korea first when we were talking about this region, there is a fascinating theme in South Korea, which is just the absence of political insiders, because it's looking like the presidential, in presidential election in South Korea will be fought between two main front-runner candidates, neither of whom have been a member of the National Assembly. And in terms of the People Power Party side, the Conservative side, has never held office of any description. So we have a, an election basically between uh, Lee Jae-myung of the Democrats and Yoon suk yui of the People Power Party, neither of whom have ever been a member of the National Assembly in South Korea. So I think that's a fascinating theme in terms of the rise of political outsiders in South Korea. It doesn't necessarily apply to the other elections in um, the Asia-Pacific, but I still think it's a fascinating thing to, to look out for as we move into 2022. Well, I've got an interesting stat about South Korean presidents. Did you know that if you take out Moon Jae-in, Park Geun-hae, Lee Moon-byak, Roy Moon-hoon, basically the three predecessors were all jailed at very various points after they left the presidency. So Moon Jae-in, let's see whether he can break that curse. And I think as well that one of the, you know, we talk about foreign policy as well, is that these are elections that all will take place within China's backyard. So relations with China will potentially, I don't think will be very interesting to see because one thing you recall, Sam, back to the Canadian federal election was that the Conservatives lost the seats in Richmond Centre uh, and, and in um, Markham Unionville because of the very strong anti-China stance. I wonder how in Australia, how the, chi the China vote will potentially go because it has a potential to affect many seats in both Melbourne and Sydney. I'm thinking of seats like Chisholm, for example, and in Reed and Banks in particular, so that these seats could be very interesting as well. And all of them have somewhat, um, for want of a better word, strained relations with China. I wonder what they, what, how those, how, how potentially these election results could influence the regional dynamics with China. Could be something we don't often talk about in this podcast, but something would be very interesting to keep an eye on. The other thing I think about the Asia-Pacific elections, I'm thinking of um, the Indian states, South Korea and Australia in this, in this statement, is that they all take place in the first half of the year, which is very different to a lot of the other elections we're going to talk about in today's podcast, which might make the dynamic of the elections very different, because in autumn 2022, we're largely expecting slash hoping that the days of the pandemic will be in the rearview mirror. Specifically, the health impacts of the pandemic will be on its way out and we'll be dealing with the economic consequences. But in the first half of the year, especially with the size of this Omicron wave, we might still be having some lingering pressures on incumbent governments managing the, the height and the declining peak of the coronavirus pandemic. I, I mean, just look at Australia. Their election needs to take place before May. And they're just about now getting into their wave of Omicron. So the likelihood of them still dealing with the aftermath of that during their election is much higher than, say, the US midterms or Brazil or the Swedish election, which we're going to come and talk about when we talk about Europe. But so I think that's another interesting dynamic is we might have a very big contrast between the themes of elections at the start of 2022 and the themes of elections at the end of it. I think you're absolutely right there. And I think those are, will be all fascinating themes to watch. Let's, we, we've kind of moved across the groups. Let's move back to the European center. Because I think the big one you cannot ignore is the French presidential election due to take place in two rounds, um, relatively you know, heading to the summer of 2022. Emmanuel Macron is a favorite and it, he also holds, I think, uniquely the EU presidency as well. So all eyes will certainly be on the race for the Elysee Paris in Palace, in which I don't think, Sam, you and I would think that if you talked to me a year ago, I'll be saying, well, it's me, Macron and Le Pen. But it's suddenly become a much more crowded and interested view, hasn't it? Well, I did talk to you nearly a year ago about this election when we had a little discussion about France during the Euros football tournament. And both of us agreed that this was almost a rematch waiting to happen. It was going to be Macron versus Le Pen round two. Since then, two things have changed. 
One, the Republicans have picked their candidate in Valerie Pecrez, and she's turned out to be an incredibly popular person. In fact, she propelled the, the Republicans' opinion poll ratings um, quite significantly, um, not necessarily into the lead, but into the top two. And if the Republicans were to make it into the second round against Macron, I think that'd be a fascinating second round because I wonder if a lot of other political forces that are not on Marsh supporters would rally around Valerie Pecrez as almost the as almost the establishment candidate against uh, Emmanuel Macron, which seems a bizarre thing to say. But then the other thing that's changed is we've had an entry into the presidential campaign by Eric Zemmer, who has added yet another far-right populist candidate into the race, which has just completely eclipsed Marianne Le Pen's poll ratings in terms of her ability to make it into the second round. Because when you have two candidates which almost are targeting exactly the same voter base, it diminishes both of their chances of getting into the second round. So I don't necessarily know who this benefits. But I think this election is going to turn out very different to what we expected just a year ago. Did you see the rise of Valerie Pekas coming? Because, I mean, I never heard of her, frankly. No, and to be honest, I didn't expect her to become the Republicans' candidate because there were some huge beasts in the um, Republican primary for president, not least Michelle Barnier, who UK audiences are very familiar with. Um, so... Valerie Pecres making it out of that competitive field was not inevitable. So her then rising through the opinion polls in the wider presidential election was even less Yeah, because I, 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 that's fascinating to me. And, you know, the socialist candidate Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, you know, they announced her candidate several months before, but we never saw that kind of traction, really. So it strikes me as really interesting how she is able to suddenly rise in the opinion polls but not, Val- uh, but not Anne Hadego of the, the socialists, really. I think it does show you, Sam, that the French socialists must be in truly dire condition because there really is no other way in which I can describe them. Um, can you? No, absolutely. I mean, the socialists are not going to be a feature of this presidential election campaign. But I think one thing I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about when we talk about France as the election approaches, but I think one thing this election is going to prove is that 2017 was not a problematic year necessarily for the Republican Party. I think it was specifically a problematic year for Francois Fillon, their candidates. So the party was not destroyed and has rebuilt. The party did quite well. In fact, Francois Fillon was not that far off making it to the second round at all, considering the new the plethora of scandals that had been thrown at him during the campaign. So I think it is proving that 2017 was just an unfortunate candidate moment for the Republican Party, but their strength still remains. And I think Valerie Pecres in this election is proving that. Yeah, and I think that there's overall theme that could be described through Europe, because it does seem that several other party leaders who will be facing elections over the next year are in a relatively good position. I'm thinking of Mandelina Anderson, who actually has got the Swedish Social Democrats in recent opinion polls to back above 30%. So it seems Stefan Lofren's gamble to resign so far has appeared to peel off. And so we're going to get a really early test of this theory because at the end of this month, Portugal is going for elections. Now, whether Antonio Costa can win a majority, we will discuss that next time in our next podcast. But nonetheless, he is still, I think, in a good position to return as prime minister. So I suppose the natural question, therefore, is what is the difference between incumbents in America and Americas that are, you know, a lot of them are facing trouble to Europe, where there is Omicron still breathing through Europe, but is still nonetheless facing the same. Uh, the incumbents are in a much better position. What do you think is that potential difference? Sam, potentially one theory is what is the role of government been? Because I think Europe and it's more much more receptive to the role of uh, the bigger role of government and has seen and it's more approving of the bigger role of government, which has tended to benefit strong and centre-left leaders, which is potentially what Macron and uh, and Costa and Anderson are. Do you what other theories do you have to why incumbent leaders in Europe are potentially doing better than the Americas? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. I think it's that the ac- across the board in the North and South Americas, 
at least in in recent years, the US and Brazil in particular have been led by more um, right wing leaders, whereas the countries that are coming up, as you say, in Europe are coming more from the, the center center left. So I think potentially the globe is at a different position in its cycle of support for those different ideologies, particularly in the coronavirus pandemic, because we've both talked quite a few times that parties who are much more willing to make bolder spending commitments, who've also been much bolder on um, prioritizing health over the economy, have benefited more within the pandemic arena than countries which have prioritized economic outcomes and at the same time have been more stringent on taxation and spending. So I think it's more just how the ideology fits the time. Um, but obviously, the Swedish election in particular is nine months away. And Magdalena Andersson's Social Democratic Party has been facing its problems of its own, not least the fact that it's currently um, presiding over the smallest minority government in recent Swedish history. So I wouldn't rule out Magdalena Andersson facing further problems as we move into further on into 2022. But yeah, I think it is interesting that incumbents seem to be at the moment doing faring much better in Europe than in the Americas. Something that just occurred to me is that, you know, we talk about the pink waves that occasionally sweeps through South America. And I think, you know, if the Brazil president falls, that's um, a big indication that a pink wave is once again sweeping through South America. Do you think that sort of these waves of left-wing, right-wing that we see throughout Europe and potentially now, you know, all our Schultz, you know, the Norwegian Labour Party, you know, running the shop, it seems to be sort of a, the wave that swept through Europe in the early 2010s. This is the 2020s will be defined by a centre-left wave, not necessarily as left-wing in South America, but can we describe Europe in the same way? I think that's a plausible theory because there are there has been um, a revival of social democratic fortunes in Europe, um, particularly over the last year. And I think the 2022 UK local elections, which we'll be definitely be covering, could be another indicator of that because the Labour Party is moving into 2022 in a much stronger position than it's been in in recent years. So. Potentially, potentially. But as I said, social democratic parties have been hit before and 2022 could well be a year when they are hit yet again. And as we said in France, they're not even part of the conversation at all. So there is an asterisk to it, but I think I think you could be right here. One final European election I wanted to mention before we sort of summarise what to look out for is Northern Ireland, which is is one of my like champion elections of 2022, because I think it is going to be absolutely fascinating. And that is a case in which incumbents are facing difficulties because the Democratic Unionist Party, for the first time in the history of Stormont, might not finish this election in first place. And the consequences of that for um, Northern Ireland politics, for devolution, for the UK's relationship with Northern Ireland, is enormous. So I don't think the importance of that election could actually be understated. Yeah, I am actually not looking at, for me personally, I'm looking at two elections in Eastern Europe, because we saw over 2020, you know, Slovakia go to much more Europe-facing government, Maya Sandu in Moldova, Peter Falela in in Chechnya. This year, we have the biggest Eastern European election to look out for. Viktor Orban is facing re-election against one opposition candidate in Hungary, that would be something, that would be fireworks, actually. And that will be, a you know, if you talk about the Visegrad four countries, you know, Poland, Hungary kind of form one block, and Chechnya and Slovakia now form one. It will be really interesting to see whether there's overall movement or a movement to or away from, uh, towards the European Union because of the Hungarian elections. And that could be very fascinating to watch. I think also something to watch very quickly is Slovenia going to the polls as well. Also part of the Eastern European stress, although I note their Prime Minister, Janice Yester, who actually congratulated Trump on winning his second term, false as it turns out, um, he's in a much better place to win re-election. So those are, on my personal view, something to look out for. Absolutely. And we began this podcast by talking about Mark Rutter, 
well, the only leader who's longer serving in Europe than Mark Rutter is Viktor Orban. So I think Mark Rutter has something to look for in this election as well. But And speaking of Trump, I noticed that Donald Trump endorsed Viktor Orban last week for his re-election campaign. So um, if you were unsure of what kind of election we're expecting in Hungary, I'm sure that endorsement might give you some hints. Well, Sam, I think that's been a fascinating discussion of what 2022 has in store. I think the one question that I have, and because it affects the politics of all regions, we've seen it across, is what do you think is the fate of populism in this election? Because we saw, particularly at the start of the pandemic, populist party fare badly as there was, a, you know, as voters wanted grown-up government as such, you know, technocrats in government who know what to do, really. Do you think 2022 will see the re-emergence of populist forces as people get frustrated by, you know, the constant lockdowns, despite the fact that, you know, they were told that vaccines were the root out of freedom, potentially? Do you think, or as, you know, the cost of living rises, particularly amongst, you know, in uh, thanks to supply chain shortages, increasing oil prices, could that could populist forces be able to tap into the frustrations of general people, you think, in this year? I don't know, to be honest, because one of my theories about about where populism comes from in terms of when it's the strongest is all about when governments are being relatively conservative about its spending. And one key feature about um, elections in 2021 and looking ahead to 2022 is that parties both of the centre-right and centre-left are pledging much bolder platforms for government in terms of taxing and spending because they need to do something significant to combat this, the economic pressures of the pandemic, especially moving to the, the rear side of the pandemic. And I wonder if when mainstream parties are moving into elections with quite bold platforms, with quite ambitious economic packages on climate change, on house building, on wages, on um, the welfare state, populist forces don't really have an argument to make. Whereas in a world where parties are being much more conservative, they might be proposing stringent taxation and stringent spending policies, potentially even austerity measures, then I think those are the kind of environments which populist forces thrive on. And I'm not sure 2022 is necessarily going to be a year in which that environment exists. Potentially, although the question is whether there are other, because I think what populism is very good is latching on to issues that may not necessarily be government tax and spend. Immigration was the big one. You know, yes, there is no, will the coronavirus pandemic be that one? I think that will be one of the questions to look out for. And I think as well, potentially another, I still think that it's still a general frustration and sort of anti-incumbency that is why people vote for populism as well. And given the, particularly if you're up for elections, as you say, in the first half of this year, I think that could have a lot of potholes indeed in terms of governments having to face the wrath of the people while Omicron is still running ravage in their country and the health systems are potentially at risk. So that was where I was coming from, really. Yeah, I mean, in terms of right-wing populism, I think you have two great elections, one in the first half of the year, one in the second half of the year to test the state of right-wing populism, and that is France and Brazil. Um, and also, as you said, you have Hungary as well. You have Viktor Orban. You have some high-profile case studies of the state of right-wing populism. And as we talked about, I mean, left-wing populism also exists. Um, but I think this is a year in which right-wing populism is really going to be tested. And we'll, and we'll have to wait and see in a year's time as to how many of those right-wing populists are still on the political map. And finally, Sam, because this will really affect how many podcasts we are about to do for this upcoming year, do you <laughs> think that we are looking at any possibilities, any governments could collapse or call an early election or prime minister decides to call it quits? Which countries potentially are fit into that description? I mean, Israel and Bulgaria stand out to me because <laughs> they seem to be having an election every three months. So we're due another Israeli or Bulgarian election. But both of them have formed governments and both of them seem to be going fine for now. Um, but aside from that, I'm not particularly sure because a lot of governments have been quite freshly formed in 2021. 
with um, a re-energized purpose because of the pandemic. So there's not any immediately on my radar. I don't know if there are any on yours, Chern. Yeah, I think Israel is a good one, actually, because I think Israel more like in Bulgaria because of the ideological mix of that coalition, you know. It's basically an anti-Netanyahu coalition, and whether it survives this whole year, I do not know. I think the one to watch is something will be in Malaysia, because the Malaysian government is potentially in a very good poll position, but it's kind of, uh, it's thanks to political wrangling over the last year, it's kind of been holding back on holding an election. Whether they've promised not to hold an election this year, but we've seen governments not hold, go back on their word in that. Thailand is the other one as well to potentially watch for an election. So I think these are my two countries to watch. I think the problem is as well in discussing this question, Sam, is that a lot of countries have moved towards fixed terms, more, more likely or not. And that means that elections will be held more regularly unless governments collapse. And right now, I just don't see at this start of the year any government potentially collapsing in the future. We could, we always talk about Spain being a possibility, but I don't think we are quite there yet. There are some tensions between the socialists and the left, but I don't think they are ready to collapse the government, particularly when the People's Party is ahead in Spain. So like you, I'm struggling. I might look to Malaysia and Thailand, but I don't think they're slam dunks for government collapses. Well, you can be absolutely certain that if they indeed do collapse, they will be added to our agenda as soon as possible to talk about on the podcast. And we look forward to talking about all of these stories and many more as we move into 2022. And I think the, this podcast has got me even more excited for the elections to come um, this year. But for now, that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. There won't be an episode next week, but join us again in two weeks' time where we will be previewing the Portuguese parliamentary elections as we talked about this podcast taking place at the end of January. And as always, we'll bring you up to date on the world of politics and elections around the globe. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at at ballot underscore talk. And please do leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Sam, and until next time, we'll speak to you soon.